I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. To- <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist, the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith, and this week your science questions are going under our microscope, including is the universe mainly empty space? Can you win the lottery every week? Well, yes, you can. And the origins of curry samples from 2,000 years ago have been unearthed. Plus, when the whistle goes for half-time, we'll have a quiz for you that you at home can have a go at too. Let me introduce you to the panel of people who are going to answer your questions this week. Tony Padilla is a theoretical physicist. He's a cosmologist at the University of Nottingham and also a very popular science and maths communicator. He's made many appearances on the Numberphile YouTube channel and he's also written a book recently. It's called Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them. Why are some numbers, in your view at least, a bit more fantastic than others, Tony? Well, you know, I just love those numbers that that are sort of wild and crazy and really make you think about the most fantastic physics that are out there, you know, the physics of black holes and the early universe and all that sort of stuff. So that that's what numbers do for me. They make me think about magnificent physics. Have you always been good at maths? Um, I mean, I've always liked maths. I mean, I, one, one of the stories I tell in my book is that... Um, when I first went to uni, I actually got zero in one of my first assignments. But this was because the the um, the tutor really wanted me to to sort of use a certain amount of pedantry that I I wasn't comfortable with. I was actually uh, all my arguments were right. He just didn't like how I laid out on the piece were of paper. Were you studying maths at university? Presumably. I was studying you, maths. You, were, yeah, you got yeah. naught. Um, so I think at that point I realised that I need something else from from my numbers, which was uh, which was physics basically, and and the excitement of physics. Did you know Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park? went to Harvard and was studying English to start with. And he became a bit disillusioned with the way that he said his tutors were teaching him. And he started submitting the work of some of the great masters of English. And he said in his book, if you read his book, his autobiography, he said, when Blake scored a C at Harvard, he knew (laughs) English was not for me. And he retrained in medicine. And and look what happened. I mean, he turned into an amazing producer of films and and, and books and so on. So maybe you're following in Michael Crichton's footsteps. Well, I still love numbers, though, Chris. So, you know, (laughs) I haven't haven't turned to the other side completely yet. Also here is uh, Emma Pomeroy, who's an archaeologist. She's at the University of Cambridge. You've joined us before, Emma, because you've told us all about your work with Neanderthals and our early ancestors. They keep on proving themselves to be more and more like us the more we, we learn about them, don't they, really? They do, and it's one of these things where the more we delve, the more we realise that perhaps, you know, that we as humans, that we've built up to be this special, unique animal, perhaps aren't that 
unique and, and many of our close relatives, perhaps unsurprisingly, were, were capable of some of the things that we do and, and thought were unique to us. People always say that it's good to be married to an archaeologist because they get more interesting the older they get. Which, uh, <laughs> you, can't, you don't always say that about a relationship. But when, when you studied, did you have a, a sort of Tony moment then? <laughs> As in get naught on a paper that, that, that made you think in a certain way. Did you always decide, right, I'm going to go and do paleontology? No, and actually I didn't really know. So I've ended up as a, a biological anthropologist. So I'm within an archaeology department, but I specifically specialise in the study of, of human remains and, and the evolution of humans. And really I didn't know that was a thing before I went to university. I knew about archaeology. I'd grown up in uh, near Canterbury where there's archaeology all around you, you know, medieval city walls, and that really fired my imagination about learning about the past and then I came to Cambridge as an undergrad quite a long time ago now and discovered this field of biological anthropology and how humans evolved and it, and it really just blew my mind as to how exciting that whole journey had been over the last kind of seven million years and so yeah here I am. Thanks Emma. Andrew Morris is a retired science teacher he's also an author he's a big believer in continuing education and runs science discussion groups and things like that joined us on the program earlier in the year is the idea to get people just interested in science no matter what their background is? Well, it started as a bit of an experiment of my own, in fact, because I'd been teaching conventional physics and maths in A-levels in colleges, in sixth-form colleges, FE colleges, and I got more and more disillusioned with, with how restrictive the, the science is in an A-level syllabus and how far it is from what it's actually like being a scientist. So... I formed the view that people switch off science at school not really because they are unscientific or anti-scientific. I believe people remain quite curious about the world. So I started a course for people, I marketed it for people who had no science background but who nevertheless had questions and wanted to ask about the world. It might be the natural world or the physical world. And it went really well, and it just started from their questions. Well, who are they? Who's the they that you're uh, talking very to? Very attractive to women. Uh, that, that's the first thing. Of Why? Course, who, who, of course, tend to be more excluded from science or dropping oh, out I of see. science earlier. So there's more of them. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Toby Wiseman, uh, last but not least, is also he's a theoretical physicist at Imperial College. Um, we... We recently asked Toby to speculate on the types of technologies that potential alien visitors might need if they were going to come and pay us a visit. That isn't actually what you do, though, is it? What do you do at Imperial College? I work mainly on Einstein's theory of gravity in different contexts, so a lot about black holes, a bit of cosmology, a bit of string theory sometimes. Uh, And was that born out of some kind of childhood trauma or or a a naught in an exam or or was that because you you always had a particular leaning towards physics i i think it was um there was no defining moment i had a a grandfather who was an engineer and taught me about designing things when i was very young and i was fascinated by how things worked and over and so for a long time i wanted to be an engineer but i think over time i really just enjoyed physics and, and 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 loved it um, but I think it's it's the same wanting to know why things are the way they are. And, and that's sort of, I fell into it in that way. 
Tony, I threw this in at the beginning because I was sufficiently intrigued to look this story up, which came out on the 31st of July, because a couple of mathematicians at another university said that they had dreamt up a way that you could always win at one form of the lottery. And they said they've got a magic number. The magic number is 27, and they've proved it's a minimum number of tickets you would need to buy to be guaranteed a prize on the national lottery. But... It doesn't guarantee a profit, on the other hand. So what's the basis for this? Have you had a look at the story? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us how it works? Yeah, I know know the story. Yeah, so you have to buy 27 tickets. And if you buy 27 tickets, you you will win... You won't necessarily win the jackpot, but you'll win something, maybe just the, the lowest prize that you can get, which is if you get two numbers. What was really impressive in what they did was that they actually were able to show that if you buy 26 tickets, you're not guaranteed. So they, they, proving that 27 is enough is actually was actually the easy part. So you can imagine if you just bought billions of tickets, all with different... So if, if I bought... If I bought- 100% of the tickets I have to win, don't I? Yeah, so I think there's something like, what is it, 40, 40, I can't remember the exact number, 45 million, 47 million combinations or something. Of those numbers, yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you bought a ticket with every single combination in, you're obviously going to win, right? There's, there's, that's guaranteed. But the jackpot isn't 100% return, so therefore you still lose money. Yeah, of course, yeah. right? So, But if you can bring that, you can bring that number down to 27, and actually they showed using some really funky, what's called finite geometry, but it's some really cool maths, and they were able to show that, that actually there were... 27 combinations of numbers which will always have at least two of the uh, numbers that appear in the, in the, on Saturday's uh, draw. So are they specific? You've got to choose certain sequences of numbers then to, in, in your 27 selection. There's not like just one set that you have to choose. There are 27 that, in principle, if you different combinations of numbers that you could choose, but they don't always have to be... You don't have to pick the same 27 as me. I could pick a different 27. Mm. We just have to sort of arrange them in a certain way. The way they actually were able to show this... They were able to package the sort of the you know your, your choice of numbers into a bunch of diagrams, sort of clever diagrams. And there were five of these diagrams, and actually there's six numbers on the lottery ticket. So it was always guaranteed that, that you couldn't have all the numbers appearing in all the different diagrams. It always had to be two, one diagram which had two of the numbers, and that was the key to sort of winning. But the hard part was proving that 26 was not enough. Actually, the calculation for proving that 26 was not enough in principle should have 10 to the 165 steps, which is one with 165 zeros after it, which is clearly just completely impractical. There's just not enough time in the universe to to do that calculation. But they use some really sort of clever software called Prolog, which which was able to to help them with their calculation. So uh, that's how they And when it comes down to making a profit or not, have they done any modelling to see what, if you did this every week and you had your 27 what would happen at the end of a year of playing the, the game? So, I mean, you're guaranteed, if you keep doing this... You'll keep you, winning, you, but you won't necessarily win your money back each time because it's going to cost you X amount of pounds to enter you buy your 27 entries, right? Exactly. It costs you 54 quid to, to sort of... to, to buy two pounds a time. Yeah, exactly. And then, so do you make a profit? How often have they modelled that? So how, how long would you have to play the lottery that you've got a chance you're actually going to be at least cost neutral? Yeah, that's not discussed in the paper. That they, that, yeah, so I think... And well, I that's think, the key question, isn't it? I mean, what's the point of doing the research? Well, you see, gonna... yeah, we have... <laughs> Yesterday, I was telling my wife about this yesterday, and she was like, you know, well, prove it then. I was like, what do you mean prove it? I said, they've proved it. She said, well, go out and buy 27 yeah, she tickets. She said, get off, get, get, shut up, Tony. I'm, I'm trying to make a phone call to buy some lottery tickets. But I was like, but we're going to lose. You know, we, we might win, but we'll ultimately lose because it's going to cost us £54, and we're very unlikely to win more than £54. So, uh, yeah. Toby, we had this terrific question, which I'm, I'm going to play. Just, just come in um, from one of our listeners, actually one of our overseas listeners who couldn't listen live, so she sent this to us. Have a listen to this. Hi Naked Scientist panel. 
I've got two parakeets. I put their cage on my balcony in Brooklyn, New York, and one day it was exceptionally windy. Yet, they didn't blow off their perches. How is that? And by extension, why don't some very light humans blow away too? This is Michelle from Brooklyn, New York, a longtime listener and first-time questioner. So there you go. Why don't her parakeets blow off their perch? I mean, they've got feathers, which means they use them to move air around and fly. I think there's a, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is that they cling on. They cling on with their feet, which are like claws, so they grab onto their perch, and by doing that, they, they stay. But I think the, the, it's, it's a very interesting question because I think we balance in quite a different way to the way they balance. So... When we balance, we have to use our weight because our feet press down on the ground and the ground presses up on our feet. The way we balance is we move our centre of gravity where the force of gravity acts on us to counteract any forces on us. So if the wind blows, we brace ourselves by moving into the direction of the wind And what we're doing is we're moving our weight out over our feet to create a counter-rotation to the one that the wind is imposing on us. But for a bird, birds are very light, so they have very little weight, and so they can't do that. And presumably that's why they've evolved... One of the reasons they've evolved feet that can grip onto things so they can exert forces by pushing and pulling, which we can't. Whether you're large or small, if the wind is strong enough, it will blow you over. So, you know, when you jump out of a plane, if you're not wearing a parachute, or rather, if you're wearing a parachute and you choose not to open it for a while, you'll reach terminal velocity, which is about, you know, a bit over 100 miles an hour. And that's when the wind force on you balances your weight. Because we use our weight to balance against things like the wind, once the wind gets up to sort of 100 miles an hour or so, we can't use our weight effectively. And if we're not grabbing onto something, we will get blown down. It's The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. We're answering your science questions this week, so if you'd like to have a question answered on a programme like this, don't delay. Send them in via chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. One of the people with us is Emma Pomeroy, who is an, a paleoanthropologist. You basically do archaeology of, of old bits of people. One of the stories that's been recently behind the news recently is this uh, question about Homo naledi. Tell us about that. What is Homo naledi? Remind us who that is and why it's in the news. So Homo naledi is really, really interesting. They're a species of human ancestor that dates to about 235 to 335,000 um, years ago. So they come from um, one site only um, called Rising Star Cave in South Africa. And they're really remarkable because actually by this point in evolution, so 300,000 years ago, we're seeing the origins of our own species, Homo sapiens. Um, most of our evolutionary relatives that are, are close to us already have quite large brains. They're quite tall. And yet Naledi is, has a small brain, not much bigger than a chimpanzee, um, quite small in terms of their stature, you know, averaging under five foot. And yet there's this remarkable site at Rising Star Cave where up to 15 individuals or more have all been found deep in this really hard to access cave. And it's the only site we know them from. So this is really, really fascinating. What 
it does. It really challenges some of our assumptions about the evolution of things like complex behaviour, so making tools, burying the dead, things like this. And the papers that have come out um, a couple of months ago now, there's three that have been published together and they're uh, presenting some really quite controversial uh, new evidence from the site. Uh, and the authors are claiming that Naledi was intentionally burying their dead, that they're making tools. And even one of these burials, the individual has a, a stone tool clasped in their hand. And that they're also making art, so making engravings on the wall of the cave deep down in this really inaccessible place. And it's generated a lot of discussion. I mean, those suggestions that a species with such a small brain would be capable of things that we've assumed that you need a really big brain for is quite controversial. But the study is also quite controversial because the level of evidence that's being presented to support these big claims is not as robust in the minds of many in the, the scientific community as perhaps it ought to be. And so this is also kind of frustrating, I think, in terms of the presentation of science, particularly in popular formats. And there's even an, a Netflix documentary that's just come out about this site. And there's very big claims being made, but unfortunately not big evidence at this stage. Well, we'll watch this space. And talking of space, and thanks for that, Emma, Toby, this is a good opportunity to talk about an, another interesting piece of news that's surfaced fairly recently and, and made waves, and that was gravitational waves from black holes colliding. Who, who, can, t t who can tell us a bit more about this? Do you, do you want to start, Toby, and then perhaps sure. Tony can pick up? Sure, absolutely. So um, gravitational waves are ripples in space-time that get formed when very massive objects move in a sort of, for us, an incredibly dramatic way. And so they were first observed in uh, 2015 from um, a pair of black holes a billion light years away. So a billion years ago, the, these very massive black holes, they were many times the mass of the sun, collided with each other and set off these ripples. They travel for a billion years and then they stretch space and time as they pass. So on Earth, this very amazing experiment called LIGO in America measured this distortion in space and time as the wave rippled past and f that was the first time these things have been seen. So since then, we've seen quite a lot of similar mergers. So we now have the technology to see that. But this new discovery in, in June was a, a completely different class of black holes producing quite different ripples. So these are supermassive black holes. Supermassive black holes live at the centres of galaxies. And they're sort of amazingly millions or even billions of times the mass of the sun. When galaxies merge these supermassive black holes also come into orbit around each other because each galaxy will have one at its centre. They'll start orbiting and they produce a signal. And it's that that's been measured really amazingly in June. Andrew? Yeah, uh, one of the things I think is really interesting about this LIGO experiment, you described these distortions in space and time, is to quantify how big that distortion is. Because uh, I think I read that the... LIGO experiment is the most extremely small disturbance is detectable over a very large distance. Yes. Yeah. How, how big is it? So, yeah. so for the, the, first, um, the first event discovered, it was unbelievably tiny uh, amount. So what it does is it stretches. So you should think of a fractional change, a percentage change in length. And the percentage change in length, I think, is about a billionth of a billionth of a percent. 
So it's an absolutely <laughs> tiny... I mean, it's unbelievable that we can measure... I mean, I can't measure them. These brilliant experimental physicists have developed the technology to measure but, them. And um, it's taken decades. But Tony, why is it important that we can even do this? Why, why are gravitational waves... Why did they win a Nobel Prize for Kip Thorne and others and, and effectively validate what Einstein was saying? Why is this useful? What sort of new vista does it open on the universe for us? Well, it really is a new window on the universe. I mean, previously, you know, we've we've looked at the universe, we've looked at the light that we see from dif- distant stars and and distant galaxies, and you know, we can we can read off the behavior of the universe from that. But now we can essentially hear the universe as well because these gravitational waves they're they're traveling long distances and they're feeling the size and shape of space and time itself so they're really a a new window where you know we can we can now hear what space and time is doing how do we know where they've come from though because if they're tiny and they're traveling just uninterrupted across the universe when we detect them how do we know which way they've come from we see the light as well, or in this case, gamma rays. So it's a very high frequency light that we can't actually see, but we can detect. And oh, right. So you see, a, you see a light source and you well, also yeah. see some gravitational waves issuing from the same part of space. And you say, well, they're probably connected. It, it, so these events can be caused not just by black holes, but also by neutron stars. And in the case of neutron stars, we will see those, those light signals as well. So we can detect But those. what about his supermassive black holes? How, how do we see that happening then? That is very much a, a sort of rumbling background. So it's not, it's not so much directional. It's, it's a rumbling background. So what we use are these, these uh, special objects that are out there called pulsars. These are stars which, which kind of sort of, in, in a way, they pulsate with a very regular time interval and what we These do are jocelyn bell burnell's little green men but they they were what we thought were aliens and turned out to be stars sending out absolutely. regular pulses of, of of information exactly and those those pulses they're so regular that we can really use them to see how sort of time is changing through to the you know space the distance so they're like a traveled. metronome in space and as space wobbles with the the waves coming through you can see that wobble goes off kilter and that tells you that a gravitational wave has distorted space-time in that sort of neighbourhood. You're expecting the, the pulse to come at one particular time, and if there's a slight t- time change, then then you can sort of detect that, and, and that, that's what you're looking for. But but the really interesting thing, I think, about this event, this new new measurement, all the talk has been that it does come from these supermassive black holes, but this is where you can really start to test different physics, because it might not be from supermassive black holes. It might be from some really funky stuff in the early universe, right? So, for example, there can be things called phase transitions, which is where the sort of almost the properties of matter change in the early universe and you get these bubbles of of new phases forming you can even get signals of exotic theories like string theory that are sort of imprinted on this and these on this signal and that this this signal allows us to probe that that's why it's so exciting how are you going to get to the bottom of that one toby through time so <laughs> so these measurements they've actually been measuring these pulsars which are un- unbelievable objects so they're rotating typically you know hundreds of times a second and they're, they're neutron stars so they're the mass of the sun giving out these pulses but they're accurate like atomic clocks so when you look at them over years they hold their the regularity of their pulses as well as atomic clocks and and that's what's allowed them to see these tiny distortions and as they measure for longer and longer they see it more accurately it's an amazing time to be doing science isn't it andrew uh, let's just look at this thing that Catherine has sent in because um she wrote to say i listened to the 
programme you made recently on AI. That was artificial intelligence, not artificial insemination. You'll be relieved <laughs> to hear. Uh, and she, her question is, how do we prevent the use of AI undermining the essentials of education? As a retired educator myself, I'm very aware of the serious issues that AI is creating in schools and colleges. Already a significant number of students are using AI in America to do their homework and assignments. Will they have essential skills that are required for adult life, like common sense, she says, and problem-solving and creativity? Or is it a bit like, I found that my sense of direction was definitely weakened as soon as I got a sat-nav? Are we in danger of, of damaging how education works in, in the classroom? Yeah, um, my reaction to that is that um, that there are you know, real risks in some areas of education, particularly if you focus on um, plagiarism and, and things like uh, essay writing and marking and assessment. On the other hand, a lot of teachers are now getting quite interested in the possibilities of AI for improving the teaching materials that they use. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting graphical methods in uh, that to represent uh, geometry and maths, for instance. So that there's there's a great opportunity uh, for enhancing the, the the materials teachers use, and there are risks. But my feeling is that it really goes to the heart of what we mean by education, the benefits of education, which in particular, learning. For many people, learning is an accumulation of factual knowledge. And this can take people a long way. It can take them through exams. I even heard a story today about somebody who got three A's uh, without really necessarily understanding what they were doing, but just accumulating the necessary minimal knowledge based on things like past examination papers and so on to get through exams. Whereas, of course, what we really want to achieve through learning is understanding. We want people to understand so that they can apply in novel, unpredictable situations material that they've learned, not just memorising facts. So, of course, the kind of AI software we're talking about now is based entirely on previously written or previously uh, drafted or music from the, that already exists. It doesn't have creativity, it doesn't have originality, it doesn't have emotion, it doesn't, etc., but I guess what, Ka- what Catherine's saying, though, is are are we effectively robbing the opportunity to have those skills from school children? It sounds to me like you're saying, well, as the machine doesn't have that, it can't replace that in people. Yeah. But but might it make people lazy learners? As in, because they don't have to go through the process of learning to get that information into their mind so they understand it and can and can see it from multiple viewpoints, which is what really yeah. understanding a topic is, because you don't have to go through that to regurgitate a, a, something that looks like a cogent answer. Yeah. Therefore, it could undermine your, your understanding, yeah. your ability to really engage with the subject. Yeah, that, yeah I agree. I, there is that risk. But my hope would be that it reorientates us more towards people learning to understand. So, for instance, when I, when I used to teach, it wasn't just a matter of um, marking uh, and getting percentages and preparing them to, to um, succeed in exam questions that can be almost predicted. But it was a matter of sitting around in group discussions and probing people's understanding of whether they could apply uh, material that they'd learned to a new situation. In other words, understanding rather than just memory and knowledge. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and this week we are putting your science questions under the microscope and with me answering them are physicists Tony Padilla and Toby Wiseman, archaeologist Emma Pomeroy and educator Andrew Morris. And temperatures have been soaring, as if I had to tell you, across most of the Northern Hemisphere as climate change bites. So this time we're asking, hot or cold? That's the thrust of our quiz. Team one are going to be Tony Padilla and Emma Pomeroy, and team two, Andrew Morris and Toby Wiseman. And round one is called Weighing Up the Cost of Climate Change. So, Tony and Emma, your question, Greenland has a massive ice sheet, but rising global temperatures mean it's melting. So how much ice is Greenland losing every year? Is it A, one cubic kilometre, B, 25 cubic kilometres, or C, 250 cubic kilometres? What do you think? I don't know. It's a really difficult one. And it's one of these things where actually the um, they're sort of things that are dimensions and sizes that are actually hard to conceptualise and imagine. So it sort of makes it even more difficult to answer the question, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of it's going to be, there'll be stuff that we don't see as well. That yeah. You're underwater, so you'll naturally underestimate. So 250 cubic kilometres, let me think. Out. So I want to take the... Yeah, so I mean, I reckon it's that, right? Because because if you take the if you think of it in terms of a distance, we'll take the cube root. So, yeah, so, I'm, so you're the numbers <laughs> guy. I am happy to go with that. So, so, <laughs> so we're going, we're going. I'm going for that. Yeah, going to go yeah. C. Yeah, well, that was the big you're one. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. You get a ding dong. It is C. It's at least well 250 well cubic kilometres of water every year. That's actually 250 billion tonnes of water, give or take, or enough to fill 10 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. Uh, measurements from space using a satellite system called GRACE weighed Greenland gravitationally to, to measure actually how much mass it was losing every year to find that answer. Team two, who are Andrew and Toby... By how much are sea level rises sea levels rising around by how much are sea levels rising around the world owing to Greenland adding two hundred and fifty billion cubic kilometres of water to the sea every year? Is it going up by half a millimetre? Is it adding half a centimetre or is it adding half a metre to sea levels every year? What do you think? I'd go for half a metre. I would go for I, I don't think it's half a metre per year. Oh, sorry, is that per I year? think we'd be in trouble. So we're doing it was, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> last time I went yeah, to every the year. So I think... Um, half a centimetre? I would go with um, half a millimetre, personally, but I'm happy mm. with your mm. half a centimetre. No, uh, I'll go. We'll go with... Uh, We'll go with Toby, seeing as I uh, you're going half lost a millimetre. out for the team last half time. Half a millimetre. Half a millimetre, and you get a... Yep, you get a ding-dong for that. Well done. <laughs> it, it is indeed half a millimetre. Uh, the contribution of Greenland alone is adding half a millimetre of sea level rise every year at the moment. Overall, sea levels are now rising at between three and four millimetres per year from all sources, including thermal expansion. So we're adding heat to the planet and that's also making the water a bit bigger. So sea level rises just because the water itself gets bigger, even though you have not any more of it. Um, and that's up from two, two millimetres a year annually in the 1990s. If Greenland melts completely, there's enough water locked up there to push up sea levels by seven metres. Current estimates are that 200 million people's homes are going to be underwater at present rates within 70 years. Right, round two is called Ice Spy. Do you see what I did there? It's cunning, wasn't it? Team one, back to you. Uh, last week, scientists announced they'd brought back to life tiny one millimetre long worms that were found in the permafrost in Siberia. 
Warmed up and fed in a dish, the worms wriggled back to life and they began reproducing. But for roughly how long have they been in the deep freeze? Is it A, 4,000 years, B, 40,000 years, or C, 400,000 years? What do you think? Over to Tony and Emma. It sounds like your your thing, Emma. Wow. <laughs> Although I have to admit, I'm, I'm more usually dealing with um, human relatives or things that are more closely related to humans than, than these um, worms. I have a feeling it was the middle one, 40,000. Yeah, I, I think I did hear this story about mm-hmm. I can't remember the numbers. You're going 40,000? Yeah. yeah. 40,000. You, you get a ding for that. It, I, you are quite right. The roundworms, which were christened Panagrelamus colimaensis, after the nearby Colima River where they were found, were discovered in thawing permafrost in what would have been a squirrel's burrow about 45,000 years ago, the last time they were believed to have been active. The worms break the record for the longest surviving frozen animal reanimation, previously a mite species that had been frozen for 24,000 years and discovered in 2021, held that title. Scientists are very concerned that rising temperatures globally will release diseases that had previously been locked away in the ice for millennia. Very very good. Right, you've got to stay in the game, Team 2. Back to Andrew and... Toby, uh, we've just heard about the long spell in the deep freeze for an animal, but what about bacteria? In 2020, scientists found dormant microbes buried about 100 metres deep in mud in the South Pacific seafloor, and they brought them back to life. But at least for how long had they been locked up asleep in the mud? What do you reckon? You're jumping the gun, you're peaking too soon, Andrew. <laughs> is it A, 200 years, is it B, 200,000 years, or is it C, 200 million years? Oh, million. Bacteria that, that's are a, very, very early, aren't they? Yeah. They, they, they are. Yeah. yeah. Okay, 200,000. 200,000, and unfortunately... You've got a, <coughs> yeah. you've got a, uh, no, your science is off. It's isn't it? It's 200 million. Yeah. By dating the yeah. sediments around yeah. the bacteria, the team found the bacterial cells must have been away in a, do- in a dormant, albeit viable state they're in, for at least 100 million and quite probably yeah. 200 million years. But yeah. given the right conditions again, they flourished. Oh. Unfortunately, you get a zero. Oh, you, you got dear. a you got a Tony for that answer. Um, <laughs> round three. So now you've got to just oh, now you've got to you've got to stay and you've got to get this one right and they've got to get it wrong to see if you can you can clinch this. So so far the scores are we have team one on two points and team two on oh, uh, one point so far. Round three, the decider. Team one, concentrations of climate change gases, chiefly CO two, are increasing in the atmosphere by about thirty five billion tons a year. But how much of this is down to volcanoes? A, do volcanoes account for about 50 times as much greenhouse gas production as humans? B, do volcanoes and human CO2 emissions equate to about the same? Or C, do humans emit about 50 times more greenhouse gases than volcanoes? What do you think the answer to that one is, Emma and Tony? I think think a volcano is going to be more. Oh, yeah, I... I really don't know. I mean, volcanoes are one of the many things I've always wanted to learn far more yeah. about, and, and I haven't, so that really doesn't help us with this question. Feel like now, Emma. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's this Packham programme on at the moment, Chris Packham programme on at the, um, at the moment, and he talks about the great dying, and, and that was caused by the volcanoes mm-hmm. um, and, and all this, you know, this kind of activity. So, and, and, and I think he said it was way more than anything that, that we, yeah. we, we humans have produced. Although whether that's in particular periods, I yeah, don't know. Of course, yeah. So, uh, so you've got 50, volcanoes are 50 times more than us. 
we and volcanoes are about the same, or we emit 50 times more than a volcano? What do you think the answer is? Volcano is 50 times more. Yeah, let's go with that. (coughs) Rebalancing the equation, because in fact it was C. Researchers reckon that volcanoes account for about 0.5 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions annually, which is 60 times less than we as a race are responsible for. Volcanoes also spew out sulphur particles, so eruptions paradoxically cool our planet down because the sulphur reflects sunlight back out into space. This is interesting, isn't it? So now we're level pegging, almost, if they can get this right. So it's um, all on this one, if you can, you can push us to a tie-break, Team 2, uh, Andrew and Toby. Which of these places is not in the top ten hottest places on Earth? Is it A, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia? Is it B, Basra in Iraq? Or C, Ouagra in Algeria? Which do you think is not in the top ten places that are hottest on Earth? I can honestly say I have no, no idea. idea. Basra is uh, on the Gulf, isn't it? Uh, so there's some offshore winds. Yeah, I'm happy to I go think, for Basra. Yeah, let's go for Basra. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you get a cough for Basra. It, Basra is on the, the, the list. Uh, Jeddah was the answer. It's very hot, but it isn't in the top ten. Right. Quite a hard question, that. Do you know who the leader of the pack is? Who, who's right at the top there? for hottest place on earth death valley and yeah you're quite right it is it's it's california's death valley appropriately named furnace creek it's got the record for the hottest air temperature ever which was 56.7 degrees that was set though in 1913 so it just goes to show that the the climate uh, has always shown enormous departures from time to time but we're seeing a more sustained increase now in the more modern era um most days in death valley 47 degrees is the temperature so it's a pretty hot place to be and the driest as well in the u.s so we do have a winner emma you said (laughs) when you came in that uh you said you were awful last time on the quiz and so you you've brought it back this well, time. Well, I, I think Tony. last time it was actually me and Andrew who were on the same <laughs> team. Um, so. are, are you saying Andrew is the weakest link? No, is that, no is that not at all. But I th- I, yeah, I think we were both worried that we were, you know, not going to be more of a, or that we were going to be more of a hindrance than a help to our our teammates. So at least we got some right this time. I think that's an improvement, right, Andrew? <laughs> Let's whip through the questions in the time we have remaining because we've got lots of questions to get through. This one for you, Toby. Are molecules in air really travelling faster than an aeroplane, wonders Brenda, who says it's incredible they're buzzing around so fast, how can we not be aware of them? Is that true? It is uh, It is certainly true. They're, they're buzzing around uh, very fast. I think in, in the air they're buzzing around at about 1,000 miles an hour or so, um, which is not... Uh, not that strange because, of course, when we think about the speed of sound through air, sound waves travel through air by essentially the little molecules collectively getting together and propagating pressure waves through the air. So the speed of sound is quite closely related to the speed of the molecules actually in the air. So, yes. And why are they going so fast? They're going so fast because they're hot and they're very little. <laughs> and the hotter they are, the faster they go. Because it doesn't, there's not much to accelerate. They don't need much energy. In. They, they don't need much energy. But I have to say, they don't go very fast in the same direction for very long. I think it's about a, a less than a billionth of a second before they hit someone else. Thank you for that, uh, Andrew. Over to you. Vishal says, when smoke is released by heat, it goes up, but it doesn't immediately come down. But when I throw a ball up in the air, it comes straight back. So why is that? And why does everything uh, in the form of a gas seem to go upwards? 
Does gravity have a role to play? Yes, yeah, interesting. Smoke is is a generic term. It, it, it's a lot of hot gases and particles as well, mostly soot and tar. But of course, hot hot things, hot gases, expand and become less dense than the surroundings. So, if you like, a, a hot gas over a fire is sort of floating on the um, the cooler gas around the cooler air around it, so it will rise up. I suppose the same could be true then of of water going up in the air. So, if you evaporate water from the sea and it goes up in the air as water vapour and then it forms raindrops in clouds. It's being held aloft in clouds as water particles because there's rising warm air sort of pushing it up from underneath and there's enough rising warm air to do that. So you have smoke particles. It's like like Toby's saying with the gas particles. The smoke particles are small enough that they're going fast enough that it doesn't take much of a nudge to keep them up there, but the ball, much heavier, stays up for longer. I mean, I I looked up some some of the uh, numbers behind what Toby has just told us. Apparently, each molecule in air is involved in a collision every 66 billionths of a metre, 66 nanometres, on average. That's once every 14 billionths of a second, just as you said, right down to the billionths of a second, which means that each molecule is experiencing 7 billion collisions every second. So the, the image, this is, this is the kind of thing I mean about understanding when you learn. When I was at university learning the kinetic theory of gases... I really had no imagination of just how fast they were going, just how short. There's only 11 widths, molecule widths between one, one molecule and another. So they're quite close to each other. How fast they're going and how frequently they're knocking into each other. So it's an extraordinarily dynamic thing. Yeah, different story in space, though, and at the top of Everest, oh, isn't of it, where the yeah, area yeah, is much thinner. Yeah. Toby? But they're also knocking into us. And, yeah, yeah, and it's, not, it's not quite true that we don't feel them. That actually is the air pressure. Hmm. Air pressure is precisely these tiny little things knocking into us. Each one exerts almost no force at all on us as it hits Well, I suppose... But there's so many of them. As you drive down the road and stick your hand out the window of your car and you feel the rush of air, because your car is moving along, you're pushing a lot more atoms out of the way, and molecules, of course, and and this is exerting more of a force on your hand. That's drag. Even a sound wave, you know, low-frequency sound waves, you can feel them vibrating you, and that's just these tiny little molecules bashing into you. We're we're talking... Finger on the um, loudspeaker of a mobile phone. You, you actually feel the sound waves. Incredible. Talking of very tiny things, uh, Tony, over to you. Uh, John says, I've read that the size of the nucleus inside an atom is comparable with a speck of dust in the Albert Hall. What proportion of what we call stuff, therefore, is nothing? Yeah, I mean, it, so that, that statement is true. I mean, it's roughly, so the, uh, the size of an atom is about 100,000 times bigger than the than the nucleus. And um, so, so that's that's the kind of ratios that we're talking about here. And of course, there's this, I went to see Oppenheimer last night, which is amazing. Any good? It was really good. I loved it. Yeah. And I was being a bit of a physics fanboy while I was well, we're watching g- We're going to so, make a program all about that. Uh, so stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a really, there's a really sort of, there's a nice scene in it where uh, Oppenheimer's talking to his future wife kitty and he's sort of talking about how how most of what's in their hand is empty space there's nothing there between the the nucleus you know the the sort of electrons that are orbiting around except of course the fields i mean we, we sort of say it's nothing but there's actually the, there's the electromagnetic field that's there and that's why when we what we perceive as a solid hand or a solid table or whatever we're really perceiving the the electromagnetic field and that's what, what what's there so it's not really empty there's a field there yeah so when you press down 
on a surface, the reason your hand doesn't go straight through a surface, despite the fact that 99.999999% of the surface is, is empty space, is because my electrons around my atoms in my hand are coming close to the electrons around the atoms in the desk or whatever, and like charges repel. So the minus electrons repel the minus electrons and push back on me as hard as I'm pushing on them. Exactly. So, And that's the field that you're feeling. But actually, what's really interesting is we can ask about actual empty space and stuff that's got nothing in it and ask, if you know, is there really anything there? You know, if I go out into, into space and, you know, I, I create a vacuum, is that really empty? And actually... Perhaps not, because we think it has something which is called vacuum energy, which is actually the thing that's accelerating the universe. So it all comes together in in one wonderful place. Thank you for that one. It's The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. We're answering your science questions this week, so if you'd like to have a question answered on a programme like this, don't delay. Send them in via chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. Andrew, something completely different now. We, we've had a question in, and, and it made us laugh initially, but we now really want to know the answer. So have a listen to this and tell us what you think. Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Jeff Kirtland from Brisbane in Australia. Could you please tell me why my kitchen kettle is 1.7 liters? Is the reason something to do with physics or is it cultural or was it just something left over when they converted from imperial measurements to metric measurements? I think Thank my you. kettle's 1.7 as well. Is, what's, the, what's going on? Of course, on? I was forced to do some research on this and Googled around and he's quite right. Uh, almost all kettles are 1.7 liters. So I made an inquiry of, with the Bosch Research Department. Found did that, you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got the email here, yeah. Uh, basically, as your listener guessed, it's the nearest equivalent to three pints, I think it is, uh, which is apparently six standard cupfuls, which is apparently the standard size of a teapot. So it, it is, is a carryover from... Is that an SI measure? From, a teapot is an SI yeah. measure, is it? Or? So apparently the kettle <laughs> fits the fits the the teapot standard. Yeah, so brilliant. I'm afraid there's not a lot of physics in that. Ah, brilliant. At least we've got the answer, though. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, Emma, there's another question here for you, because we had a fascinating development in the world of archaeology recently, which was they've discovered traces of ancient spices on utensils unearthed in what's now Vietnam, and it's said that they have the earliest known adoption of ingredients in South Asian cuisine from 2,000 years ago in there. And this suggests perhaps an origin for curry. I love curry. Tell us more. Yes, I love curry too. Um, And without wanting to be sort of a bit of a kind of boring scientist and saying, well, what do we mean by curry? I think it's actually important to start out and say, well, what do we mean by curry? Um, Chicken ticker jow phrase, you made just a little bit hotter with with the pilau rice and the peshwari naan. But so it is actually a term that we use to refer to cuisine from actually many different parts of the world, including the Caribbean, um, India, Southeast Asia, China, and it probably comes from um, sort of the 17th century and, and actually the British um, traveling out there uh, to those parts of the world and trading and, and seeing food that was basically a, a source with spices containing meat and vegetables and, and just 
calling it all the same thing, a curry. But they anyway, call it so, our national dish these days, don't they? Because they think really it is do. more popular than anything else, isn't it? But it is really popular. And the fact that it's so widespread across many parts of the world, it, it makes it a really interesting question. So where did this kind of cuisine come from? So there's evidence from um, this site in Vietnam that, that you mentioned. It's from about 2000 years ago. Um, and it comes from samples um, from a sandstone slab that's probably been used for like grinding spices down. And what they do is they take these uh, samples of, of the starch grains. So these are tiny particles within um, the plant cells. And they actually differ between in their shape between different plants. So a paleobotanist um, can look at those down the microscope and say to you, actually, this is evidence of this particular plant, this is evidence of that particular plant. Um, and they found a whole range of different spices, including things like uh, turmeric, ginger, galangal, sand ginger, things that we associate with with being in a curry and there was evidence that they'd actually been ground because the starch particles were were damaged. So they're saying that perhaps this is some of the earliest evidence of, of curry. Can it also, apart from obviously being interesting to tell us about what people must have been eating, can it tell us a bit about trade and that kind of thing? Because if you, you know that some of the things they can see are, say, not native... They must have come from somewhere else. That must be a connection to another bit of the earth at the same time, arguing there was trade going on. So it, it unlocks the door to an understanding of what humans were doing, trading, behaving, etc. in that era. Absolutely. And this is one of the really interesting things that comes out of the same study, is that a lot of these um, spices that they were using, that they found evidence of, don't come locally. They're actually coming sort of hundreds of kilometres away over the sea. So it's giving us, it's not just telling us about the history of a, a food that we're particularly keen on, but it is telling us about those ancient trade networks. And I think it's also interesting to think about how people flavoured their food and how they enjoyed their food in the past, because perhaps we think of it as being quite utilitarian in past populations. You just ate to, to keep you going. And, and actually evidence for sort of flavouring foods and adding things like mustard um, to foods goes back far further than you might think. So we've got evidence perhaps um, even as early as sort of 40,000 years ago of people adding mustard seeds into the food, um, presumably to give it some flavour because they're tiny little things. Um, so probably wouldn't have much other function. But the standard of cuisine was also quite advanced from fairly early on, wasn't it? Because I remember about, it was almost 20 years ago, covering a story where researchers working in China uncovered a pot with noodles in it. And it was obviously the remains of someone's last meal. And I remember one commentator I interviewed about it said, these noodles are 2,000 years older than Jesus. But it sort of <laughs> it, it puts it into your perspective that you think 4,000-year-old noodles, people, people were able to make complicated food sorts. Absolutely. And it, and it goes back even further. So at the site of Shandar Cave, where I work in um, northern Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, we have some evidence that Neanderthals were actually pounding um, particular pulses um, and grass seeds, uh, soaking them perhaps to make them more digestible as well, and then kind of mushing them together into some kind of paste, which they were then cooking. So probably these kind of complex food processing goes back far further than perhaps we imagine and and yeah go back to Shanadar kind of 70,000 years ago and we might see something that is not too different from some of the foods that perhaps we might eat today. 
Andrew, uh, authority on all things Bosch and electrical gadgets <laughs> in the in the kitchen. Um, Pete says, is the electricity in our nerves the same as in our kitchen appliances, like that kettle that you were telling us about earlier? Yeah, it's really interesting. This is a question that comes up in my discussion group about the nature of electricity. And, of course, the re- remarkable thing that is that Everything is electrical. Atoms are electrical. And the amazing fact that we live in a neutral world in which we're not, by and large, uh, affecting each other by positive and negative charges is an amazing balance. But the intrinsic nature of atoms is that they're composed of negative and positive parts. Uh, And uh, so long when you can separate them and make either the negative or the positive part flow in a direction you've got an electrical current which is a source of energy and there are many different ways in which electrical currents can occur now in a metal metals are materials in which some electrons are released from the atoms of the metal the copper or or the iron or whatever and they become a kind of cloud of freely moving electrons and again when you apply a voltage across them that drives these electrons in a current so in in our discussion, certainly when I first started thinking about nerves, uh, we, we send electrical signals through nerves. Is it basically the same? And it's utterly different. It's not at all the same. But it does depend on ions. It does depend on these potassium and sodium ions in the uh, tissue of the of a nerve, and the the actual passage of an electrical pulse the signal in a nerve is simply caused by charged ions moving in and out of the cell in a kind of wave-like fashion so it's a bit like a, a mexican wave the passage of the electrical signal down the length of a nerve is in fact due to the moving in and out of ions across the membrane of that nerve not in any way like electrons flowing through a metal uh, over to you, Tony, because it's time for another fantastic number. One of your very popular viral videos on YouTube dedicates... Uh, you also got a chapter in your book dedicated to what's uh, called Graham's number, which I think people would like to hear about. So tell us a bit about Graham's number. Yeah, so so Graham's number... Um well, for a time, it was the it was the largest number ever to have appeared in a in a mathematical proof. Um, it's named after Ron Graham, who is a, an, an American mathematician. Uh, he was solving as well. It's it's some mathematical problem. These kind of problems that mathematicians like to solve very very sort of abstract. It's in something a branch of mathematics called Ramsey theory. It was involved hypercubes in in extra dimensions and all sorts of wonderful things. And he was trying to find like a sort of bound like a sort of bound for 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 a result so it needed to be is is this is this thing i'm trying to find is it less than some number and he was able to show it was less than this number graham's number but this graham's number is just god just ridiculously big it's it's a fantastic so you take a number like a a google for example which is a one with a hundred zeros well graham's number dwarfs that or take a googleplex which is a one with a google zeros well graham's number dwarfs that it's just off the scale, enormous. You can't write it down in any kind of well, you could in principle, but but actually, you you, you would run out of space in, in in the universe to even try and write it down. Um, so to sort of express it, we use a, a special type of notation that you have to invent to, to describe this thing. It's called Knoth's arrows, and it's kind of like an extension of, of sort of powers. You know, like powers that you learn at school. You know, three squared, three cubed, that kind of thing. It's an extension of that that allows you to very rapidly get to very, very, very big numbers. 
Um, and it, it, it is. Uh, but one of the things that, that I discussed about it when uh, in, in the videos and in the book was um, I was trying to think about, well, OK, it's, it's OK, it's a big number, but how big is it and, and how can I express that? And, and one of the ways I thought was, well, what if you try to imagine this number in your head? If you actually try to picture its sort of decimal expansion written out. Well, if you try to do that, Chris, then the inevitable outcome is that your head would collapse into a black hole. There's just too much information that, that you long before that happened, your head will it'd probably, you know, blow up. But but if you manage to not blow up, it would collapse into a black hole. So how did that guy's head not collapse into a black hole then? Well, he used this clever notation which allowed him to compactly. He wasn't thinking of it in the decimal expansion, right? So so as I said, you can imagine this for example, let's take the the uh, the number twenty seven. I, I, I could write down twenty seven or I could write down three cubed. Three cubed is a different way to express that number. So it's like that. So but in a much more enhanced way. So he had a way of expressing it that wasn't the big, massive decimal expansion. But um, And so his head didn't collapse into a black hole. Which is good. But how did it change the world, the fact that he proved this? Um, well, it got in the Guinness Book of Records. That's, that's much well, that really matters. Okay. So, so I think, I, I think, I think what's, what was important about it was that it, it showed... You know what was provable. So proof theory for mathematicians is a really is a really important thing. And you know, understanding what's provable, what isn't provable, can you show that this this can actually be answered? It, these are important questions in logic. Thanks, Tony. And I'm glad my head hasn't collapsed into a black hole. Over to you, uh, Toby. And this isn't quite a black hole, but it is blackness, the vast void space. Val says, "Is there nothing really there between the sun and the Earth when light travels? Is it really empty?" Or do they not just know? Uh, well, it, actually, space is pretty empty compared to, say, what we're used to on Earth, the atmosphere and rocks. Has but anyone actually measured it then? People have certainly... Yeah, <laughs> people have measured it. I mean, uh, one of the... So space is filled with very small amounts of matter, but there's definitely matter there. It's not a perfect vacuum. It's so, also- so what, if I, if I took a, a metre cubed of air on the Earth's surface, how many atoms and molecules would be in that compared to if I repeated that experiment, say, out beyond the moon? That's, that, off the, t- <laughs> off the top of my head, I'm not sure I can give you the answer to that. But probably one, Graham's one, 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 one would come the, into it somewhere. I think, I think a lot, a lot so on the Earth. There's surface. a lot of atoms in the, so what, you know, a, a, in a what, meter one, cube, one of, atom per meter cubed in space or something. I think it's more than that, but uh, but uh, I think it, it, in fact, I think it is roughly about that, right? I think uh, maybe uh, maybe Tony can correct me. I think it is, in fact, in, I think it is approximately one neutron or proton per meter cubed in space. So, I think so that, there's a lot. That's of roughly the average. So, sorry, Andrew. Go on. You're saying. No, yeah, that's roughly what I, yeah. I, I recollect yeah. uh, being as yeah. thin as that. But Inter- I'm, I'm not yeah. completely sure it's uniformly distributed in that way. It sure. tends yeah. to amass into clouds, so there'll be less in some regions and more in other. But in our solar system, our solar system essentially has an enormous bomb at its centre blowing up with a you know massive nuclear fusion reaction. That's the sun. And it is pumping out all sorts of stuff. It's pumping out radiation. It's pumping out charged particles, the solar wind. And so whilst that isn't very dense compared to the, the sort of densities we're used to here on Earth, there is certainly a lot of stuff in the solar system. And in fact, interestingly, I remember a couple of years ago, there was that wonderful story where Voyager, the Voyager spacecraft, actually left what's called the helio uh, heliopause, which is actually the point where the solar wind sort of bangs into the interstellar medium, the stuff that's actually out there in deep space, and forms a 
a sort of edge of our solar system. And so there certainly is stuff. There's not very much, but there's definitely stuff there. Voyager very much in the news recently because NASA sent an incorrect command which had Voyager <laughs> deflect its dish a bit, which put it off of alignment with the Earth signals. I think the Australians were able to use an extremely big dish, so size does matter, to send some signals. And they said they've detected the heartbeat of Voyager 2, so they think they've got it back, don't how, they? How awful would you feel if that was you? Well, no, apparently, <laughs> apparently uh, NASA obviously realised that, that humans make mistakes when they launch Voyager because it resets itself on axis every automatically every x number of months so they said it's all right because come october it will be back anyway so but that would be a while to wait wouldn't it you'd be that nervous be you think i was the guy who killed voyager in the it, meantime it's been going for a while though that's all the science we have for you this week though thanks for listening and thanks for sending in your questions thanks also to our wonderful panel tony padilla go read his book fantastic numbers where you find them archaeologist emma pomeroy science educator andrew morris and theoretical physicist toby wiseman the naked scientist comes to you from the university of cambridge's institute of continuing education we're supported by rolls royce i'm chris smith thanks for listening until next time goodbye Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.